This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, a happy Monday to everyone who's listening to us. It is 6 a.m., like I say, Monday, 18 of July. And it's the start of a whole new week. And almost ritualistic, we're going to ask, I'm going to ask Philip C, who's in the studio with me, and I'm Wong Xiaoning, how was your weekend? It was an excellent weekend because I didn't do much. I mean, I went for this award ceremony Saturday night. Okay. So I had to dress up a bit and wear a tux, which I found very disconcerting because I haven't worn a tux for a very long Did your time. Cumber, was there a cummerbund or is that something old-fashioned from the 1970s? I did have a cummerbund, but, def- but I think... You I had be- a little bow tie? I did, but it was an attachable bow tie. Oh, you're such a loser, <laughs> Philip. Don't you know how to tie your own bow tie? I have no clue how to tie a bow tie. Oh, no. It was those where the clips are. Oh, no. <laughs> That's the ultimate low low when it comes to yes, fashion. It was. Okay, so we clearly know Philip is not a fashionista. Long live clip-ons. That's all <laughs> I say. Long live clip-ons. Please don't tell me you do that also for ties. No, of course. I know the tie. But if I had a choice of having a clip-on tie, I would embrace it as well. Oh no, you're Mr. <laughs> Fast Fashion. Anything to get Fast out of the house. Fashion. Exactly. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> that's good to hear. <laughs> That you had a, a quiet but a, a slight, uh, I would say, a Not black fashion tie faux pas. I wouldn't say fashion faux pas. Okay. <laughs> uh, but as usual, on the morning run, we are having a very, very busy day, unlike your weekend. Um, packed show. So at 7.15, we're going to discuss the government's decision to allow CBD products for medical purposes purposes, excuse me, with Azro Mohammed Khalid, CEO of Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. And CBD is not Central Business District, but cannabidiol, cannabis. Yes. Right? And at 7.30, we're going to discuss the outlook for oil markets with Wayne Tan of Bloomberg NEF. I'm really intrigued how oil is going to trade in the next few weeks ahead. Well, especially since Biden has just come back from the Middle East. Fist bumping everybody. Yeah. Uh, Well, looking at Brent crude, 101 US dollars at this current moment, still up 35% on the year-to-date basis, but quite far from the highs that we saw, Mm. what, 140 uh, US dollars a barrel. Then at 7.45, we're going to discuss the outcome of the PKR Congress that took place over the weekend with political analyst Dr. James Chin. A lot of news. So much news. I'm like, what's happening there? So we'll find out. Uh, All this and more on The Morning Run. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, and that was Clocks by Coldplay, excuse me, one of my favourite bands, actually, headed by Chris Martin, of course. But we're going to break with regular programming because (laughs) Philip has just informed me. Amazing. Breaking news. Breaking Breaking news. news. And what is the breaking news, Philip? Is this from a reliable website, by the way? It's from the BBC. Oh, okay, that is reliable. Benefer has tied the knot in last week. Okay, but rewind, rewind. Who is Benefer? Benefer is Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck. Oh, wow. And this is their second time they've never been married they before married. but of course they dated like many years ago right they were getting into an engagement they, go- they were engaged but they called up the engagement about 17 years ago wow and, and we all know what's happened since then J- JLo I think dated and married A-Rod so there was J-Rod and all that kind of stuff but yes Benefer is back in but you know we are a business station we shouldn't spend too much time on these stories I suspect it's 6 o'clock it's fine <laughs> uh, I'm j- okay we can take the money Money. did they have a prenup I mean I'm they curious Uh, So since the business station, we always have to talk about money, right? So I'm curious whether they had a prenup, jokes aside. I'm not sure. I presume so. And did they sell the rights to their wedding? Did they like, you know, because that's what happens quite commonly nowadays. And it's also a, it's also a lesson learned, you know, try not to make movies together like Giggly, Giggly, which was a disaster. So, you know, couples try not to 
to stuff together. Didn't Tom Cruise also do one with his ex-wife? Penelope Cruz? No, no, yeah, she he did Katie what? Holmes? No, and before I'm quite worried that you know all these people. <laughs> Well, we are. The morning run, there's nothing we don't cover. But coming back to our regular programming, we have this uh, slightly more sensible article uh, from the Financial Times and it's entitled, How to Beat Travel Kiosk and Enjoy Your Summer Holidays. So we are all going to be Debbie Downers here and tell people, yes, please go and travel. Stay safe, of course. Wear your mask. Do all the SOPs. But because there is a shortage of flights, shortage of bag handlers, shortage of people just working in immigration and in every part of the airport and everybody, you know, where every part of the travel industry is just trying to get its act together. Be prepared for the travel chaos ahead. It is a perfect storm. We're now entering summer holidays in Europe and we've all seen the pictures of these long queues where the infrastructure, the airlines, the airports really just can't seem to get the act together to move forward. I think we saw last week Heathrow was capping the number of people to enter London Heathrow at 100,000. And Emirates responded very fast to say, no way, Jose, we're just going to do what we continue to do. And it's just going to not make, it's going to make the situation much worse. Well, I listened to this BBC podcast and they actually interviewed the HR person, which is in charge of recruitment for the Heathrow airports. Okay, mm. so there are many aspects of this, right? Uh, ground staff, for example. Do you know that they're short of something like 30,000 people? I can imagine. Because when the height of COVID-19, when March happened, 2020, uh, there were furloughs, right, in the UK. But once those furloughs ended, people just quit to go and find other jobs. And now it's almost, it's so challenging to rehire new people or even these old people. And then because it's an airport, the layers in which that an individual has to go through before they can be hired is much higher because they have to do these security checks. Yep, and you have to do all these clearances and retraining for sure because it's a it's a it's a very tight controlled environment. The yeah, airport. and this is just the airports. You're not even talking about the airlines, for example. Yes, I mean airlines. Uh, you know, a lot of aircraft were parked on the ground to bring them all back up operationally. It takes a huge logistics, especially if you park them for a long time. So the question here is: Look, we expect delays. It's going to be. Huge Huge disruptions. You're heading into mid-July. August is summer peak in in the in Europe. What can you do to best prepare? And I think the first advice given in this article is simply to be prepared and anticipate delays and disruptions. So it's that mindset shift you have to put in place right up front. So be calm and carry on, right? I think that's the mantra, isn't it? It is. <clears throat> I was talking to a friend actually, and she she's very excited to go to Europe, but she's also worried that. She can't make it in time for her daughter's graduation, right? Mm. Which is the next day. So I said, well, you have to make don't sure you go just, so late. don't go so late. Prepare, yeah. anticipate, right? Go two, three days earlier. That's the reality. Yeah. And also, you know what? Uh, simple tips. Uh, there are a lot of complaints about luggage going missing, right? Mm. Because there's just not enough bag handlers. Then honestly, don't pack so much. Or be careful in terms of, or at least pack something in your hand luggage. So that if your bags don't arrive on time, uh, you have at least something to wear for the next two, three days. So the Financial Times literally gives you a blow-by-blow advice in terms of how to handle what could be a probably disruptive travel season. And I like some of them, one of which is really important, which is check your insurance cover carefully. 
So spend 20 minutes of your life apparently to read out your travel insurance po- policy thoroughly so that you know what you can and cannot claim if there's a disruption. So in the first yeah. place, have that travel insurance. That's right. I, I think this is where it's very important to understand what covers because you can also buy travel insurance one way or return and it makes a huge difference yes. uh, what the coverage is. And does it cover COVID? Because in the past, yes, a lot of countries insisted on COVID insurance. Mm. So you were forced to buy it. But now that's not a necessity for a lot of countries like even the UK, they've dropped that requirement. But I think because COVID-19 is here to stay, it's it, you should check whether it is an whether you have to opt in, you shouldn't assume that it's automatically covered any, uh, by any means. Absolutely. I think there was also the earlier point you made about travelling. Like, you've seen these baggage disruption systems happening in place. You know, we tend to bring like two or three pieces of luggage. I wonder if to minimise the risk, we should just pack into one big bag. I don't know what happens if that bag goes this I know. That's also the issue I had in my mind. How do you risk manage that, right? If one bag missing, at least you have two bags. So I've always debated whether I should should risk manage and just bring two smaller bags or consolidate to one big bag. Okay, this is useful. So if you have any travel tips out there to make the travel experience better, considering all the delays, all the all the disruptions, let us know. You can WhatsApp in 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio or maybe you just tell us, enough, I'll stay at home. I'm not going anywhere. But let us know what you think. Uh, we'll be back after some messages. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9619 Monday the 18th of July and of course you're listening to The Morning Run I'm Wong Shaoning together with Philip C and that song was Ashes to Ashes by Warpaint did you listen to the lyrics they make reference to this Major Tom which, really? which then brought me to think about that Major Tom that song by David Bowie which also then leads to this article <laughs> in the Wall Street Journal do you like the way I managed to link everything That's wonderful <laughs> wonderful so much talent in this room shouting I know thank you very much and it's about um, this well you chose this article it's entitled the title is so long the NASA engineer who made the James Webb Space Telescope work and tell us Philip see why you loved this article I, actually it's a podcast it was also. a podcast from the Wall Street Journal. I absolutely loved it when I was listening to it uh, over the weekend. Uh, just a bit of background, the James Webb Telescope uh, launched, I think, a couple of weeks back and yet last week, they transmitted some amazing, beautiful pictures about of space, right? Yeah, uh, I and- saw some of them. They... they- they look surreal. Awe-inspiring. Surreal and awe-inspiring. And the goal of the James Webb Telescope is really to answer the fundamental questions about the universe, right? To look at the stars as far back as 13.5 billion years ago and to ask, ask the question, answer the question whether there's life in the universe beyond planet Earth. When you see these pictures, right, do you feel very humbled? I feel so humbled. I feel so small, but in that sense, small in a very good way. Yeah, but it also makes us... Uh, for me, think, hey, there's a whole world out there and yet we're just embarking to find out more. But mm. yet as human beings, we've always been so curious. It is. So curious about what's beyond our, you know, be- beyond the world. And this is where, I mean, we take a bit of a sidestep. I also was listening to another podcast about how it's more important to be curious than passionate at times, right? When we are passionate about things, we tend to be very single-minded. But how do we make sure that we open ourselves up to other possibilities that take place? And and the pictures that I saw last week really reminded me, okay, there's more to life than just what I'm now currently focused on or drive driven for. So it really inspired me. And so when I was listening to this podcast, we know the story behind James Webb Telescope, that there was so much drama and controversy over it because its original budget was a billion US dollars. And then it, it ended up at 10, right? It ballooned to $10 billion. And, of and course, how many people worked on this project? 10,000 people apparently. 
Exactly. And I think one of the biggest complications about this technology is that usually when you do these kind of space missions, it's usually one, two, three technologies, but this involved 10 technologies. And so I think when they were going through this, and Congress in US, you know, tight fiscal budget, a lot of pressure to cut budget, even X the program. By the way, it was 15 years late. <laughs> 15 years late. And this is where the biggest problem was. They had this thing called a schedule efficiency of 55%, which meant... Something that Philip would get excited about. I was so excited about it because what it meant was for every one day you worked on something, you would delay by another day. Oh. That was how bad the situation was okay. for the James Webb Telescope project. And so it was a very demoralized team. And they got this guy to come in. Uh, I think his name is James Robinson. James, sorry, is it James? Greg Robinson. He came in to turn around the whole telescope project. And he has really delivered an exceptional result from what we saw last week. And guess what? He had another job. This was not his main job. Because uh, the Wall Street Journal mentions the only problem is that Mr. Robinson already had another job overseeing the quality and performance of the agency's programs. So he was a busy man. He was a, he was a very busy man. And think about this, right? You're being asked to do this mission, which and he declined twice. He by declined the way. twice. Apparently, he declined very politely, and in the second one, even more politely than the first one. I would also be very uh, careful when I'm asked to do these kind of big missions, which are, you know, if you were asked to take on this mission, then you would probably think, oh, this is going to be bound for failure at the rate where it's going for. And he had the courage and willingness to do this. And I think. He- the other thing this article highlights is that he managed to is because he was an engineer with technical expertise and a bureaucrat with interpersonal skills. He was bilingual. He could speak NASA employee, the language of NASA employees and also the politicians who controlled the fate. So he was like that perfect person that could multi, you know, like multitask and could, I think, also like gain the confidence of the engineers and yeah. also... A Congress, which you need. This is what is very interesting. Because of the complexity of the technology, my initial guide would have been to pick someone who has intellectual depth, technical depth. But what they picked was someone who had breadth across the board, who was able to connect the dots, who was able to engage people and bring people in. And so there were a lot of stories about how, you know, you go and have a coffee session with him. He doesn't tell you anything. But at the end of the session, you know what you need to do next. That, I think, is the power of someone's leadership. That you don't need to instruct someone. You just have a session with them and just ask the specific questions. The person then finds the answer and does it. So I think this is a tribute to his leadership. And one thing he did very well, he addressed very quickly, was he really address human error because with these kind of technologies you must be able to go down to the minutia and solve all these issues right very fast because one single point of failure could mean entire catastrophe for the mission and he was able to make sure that his strategy was to basically get more people to and fresh eyes to look at the problem well he certainly achieved this moonshot dream of his uh, but it also is a reminder that when you have the right leader in place almost anything is possible. Absolutely. But up next, we have the 6.30am news bulletin and to take us there is the Wide Open Space by Manson. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, 6.40 Monday, the 18th of July and you're listening to The Morning Run together with Philip C. And I'm Wong Shaoning and that song is Gone With The Wind Is My Love by Rita and the Tiaras. I like the title of it. I though. love this. I love. I mean, it reminds me. The beat me of, is very nice. The, the beat tune. is remind, but it reminds me of the movie in the 60, 70 years ago with Scarlett <laughs> O'Hara, Gone with the Wind. What as she's up, coming down the stairs? Yes, it? exactly. Okay, uh, and those the, romantic um, episodes, you know, hardly you see that now. You're just all texting now and going on Tinder instead. <laughs>
how love has changed, right? How much has no, love changed? How the pursuit of love has changed. <laughs> no longer but coming nice, down the stairs in your ball gown, but exactly. just using your little fingers and typing away furiously, but right? But nice beat anyway. Or, or, or Benefer. Or is it, was it swipe left, swipe right? <laughs> I'm confused. I'm confused. Well, the new romance is Benefer. Although, although there's a raging debate here whether it's Jennifer Garner or Jennifer Lopez, which camp are you in? But anyway, let's not focus on that. But it is quite that. romantic when you think that they broke up 17 years ago, right? Is it 17 years ago and then it they're back again? Okay. Ago. So you never know. Anyway, turning to the more serious side of the like morning the G20 run. talks that like were nothing the G20, burger. yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking at uh, Bloomberg and you know what? I have to admit, I, I vaguely remember the G20 because there's a lot of hoo-ha whether Russia should go, right? And they were invited. And by the way, it was in Bali, so nice location. But it ended without any real conclusion. Do you think that's why they couldn't communicate? Because they were just sipping margaritas on the beach in um, Bali? Maybe enjoying the breeze. <laughs> uh, but it ended without a, like a definitive statement. But progress apparently was made over food. And that was the big thing. That is the frustrating part. We are in a world where there's so much, there's so many challenges, and it really seems that the world cannot unite and get their act together, and even have a simple communicate about a joint effort to take tackle some of these problems. Does it go? It goes to show perhaps how divided we are. It goes to show how much lack of coherence and alignment we have among world leaders about how to tackle the problems. I think that's a frustrating part. Although, granted, it's very nice setting, and there were you know all these nice plaudits and platitudes, but but really, we haven't seen anything translate to anything no. tangible. Let's put it in millennial speak. It was a nothing burger. Literally. Yes. Yeah. Right? So there was some some talk, and this is talk, by the way, talk about uh, setting up a fund similar to the one by the global health crisis to actually deal with bolstering food security. But other than that, nothing much was achieved, which is why we didn't see much of it in the papers. So you contrast it to a couple of weeks ago, we had G7, right? Where the, the development... Oh, sorry, by the way, I've been corrected because this G20 summit is for... Uh, finance ministers, the real thing will be happening in November. But even then, there wasn't anything. Yes, yeah, still nothing, right? And you compare that and contrast it to G7, G8 meetings that took place a couple of weeks ago. It really goes to show that they, they actually produced quite a couple of things. And so I think the broader question in my mind is, are we seeing a bit of a distinction between developed and the combination of developed and developing uh, markets, right? Mm. Where you can see a bit more alignment among developed nations where they're more coherent there. But when you start bringing in other parties from developing countries and such, right, then that's where it becomes very difficult. And hence, you know, an example will be COP26 and the upcoming COP27 in Egypt. Will we ever see any alignment about taking action on climate change in the long term? I want to know what progress has been made in terms of reducing the carbon footprint, right? And the um, basically whether we are any closer to achieving that 1.5% Yeah. Degrees cut in our uh, average temperatures. I don't know. Is that happening? A progress update would be actually useful. It would be very useful. I think one thing just to remind ourselves, though, on the G20s, that many Western finance ministers did condemn uh, the Russian invasion into Ukraine. And what we've seen is, in terms of radi- latest news, is that Russia is readying for its next offensive, and that Moscow is regrouping units for attack on the city in Donetsk. So what we've seen is that the crisis and war is really much confined to the east. Mm. to the Donetsk region and Luhansk region, although we see Russia making some progress there. But apparently another offensive is being planned, perhaps even to take on the city of Kharkiv, which they lost a couple of months back. This looks like the war that's never going to end, right? Sadly for the people in Ukraine. It looks so. Yeah. But uh, turning our attention to uh, climate change, actually, since we are on that topic, it's that the, the wildfires in Portugal, Spain, France, Greece and Morocco 
are battling them and it's we're talking about tens of thousands of hectares this week as there's a huge heat wave continues to bring extreme temperatures and causes hundreds of deaths across southwestern Europe. And I, I'm reading this from The Guardian. Yeah, so this is about, I think you said, France has evacuated more than 14,000 people threatened by wildfires in the southwest. And as you said, right, fighters have spread all across Spain, Croatia and Greece. And we've even seen stories like in, in UK hitting uh, mid-30s temperatures, which yeah, are very unknown. Yeah, apparently might happen uh, this weekend, 40 degrees. But I understand this is not isolated because even then in China, there are extreme heat waves also. That's right, which also will affect crop production, which will affect how our agriculture produces, which will even put more pressure on the issues we have on inflation. So I think when you talk about governments all around the world, when they need to tackle these issues, things that are so interlinked, interlocked, that are cross boundaries, the question here is how are international bodies and organisations going about to help resolve these really big, big issues that are cross boundaries? Yeah, Uh up next, of course, we've got some messages, uh, but and we'll also be looking at some of the local headlines, which have been very interesting. So keep it here, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to The Morning Run, 6.50, Monday, the 18th of July. And that song was If You Want My Love by Cheap Trick. Uh, our producer, Simwe Boon, dedicated it to the both of us. I would like to say up front, my love ain't cheap at all times. I was going to yeah. clarify that, that my love <laughs> is definitely no cheap trick for yeah, sure. Exactly. <laughs> But I tell you what's not cheap at the moment, it's really our government finances at the moment. And I see two articles that I think caught my eye. On the star biz, government aims for 5% of savings from its remaining operating allocation to basically fund additional expenditure relating to subsidies for the welfare of the people. So the finance ministry has indicated in a circular that it plans to cut its operating expenditure, perhaps to fund all these subsidies required for the welfare. On the other flip side, you see uh, Tokpa, our minister, EPU saying that there's an austerity drive taking place where the government is looking to defer and cancel new projects, right? What kind and, of projects are those? So? Well, didn't really give the specific details but he did say it would be used to channel for the welfare of the people apart from efforts towards the country's economic recovery. He's had meetings with the Public Works Department and the Implementation Coordination Unit, ICU for the financial position to see that the projects that have yet to be commenced to see whether they can defer or cancel them. Is this just posturing though? How much savings is it really going to be? Well, I think that's the question is... As because, you, said, right, you know, you have had people ask, I mean, you've seen on social media where, mm. you know, res Malaysians just come on and say, why don't we cut the salaries of ministers? And, you know, because we have quite a, quite a few ministers actually, quite a big cabinet. It's so I don't know issue. whether this is also just, you know, how much, money talk, is it, right? yeah, how much money is it going to really save? Well, 5% of savings from OPEX probably can help a bit. Yes, I mean, if you think about subsidies. Place, shouldn't the government always have a sense, a, a, an austerity kind of mind? Don't mm. they have a fiduciary responsibility in terms of how they spend taxpayers' money in, to begin with at the, begin, <laughs> at the very onset? Well, I've been through many budget planning cycles before and people tend to inflate these numbers leading up to budget to provide buffer and such. I wonder if that kind of mentality does take place as well in many parts of other organisations. As we enter actually to budget cycle, because now we're in mid-July, yes, in less than three months, budget 2023 will come out soon. I'm sure this is where we're going to have very tough conversations about where we're prioritising allocation of budget. Yeah, and uh, you know, considering the uh, continued... A subsidy program to the tune of 80, close to $80 billion going on. Actually, if you ask me, okay, fine, it's true. Uh, civil service government should be careful in terms of how they spend their money. No doubt about it. But hey, 
there's the elephant in the room, which is the targeted subsidy program, right? Yeah. Why isn't anyone addressing it today? Or is it because it's such a political hot potato? Well, that's been the quick, big debate. Everyone talks about it, but I haven't seen any implementation on it. Yeah. That is the question. Why is it not being taking place? And if you think about it, and it's meant to be populist, then just change the way how you do targeting. Perhaps. Um, now I've got uh, the Edge the Weekly in front of me. And uh, actually, something happened on Friday which doesn't happen very often, and that is Bank Negara actually issuing a letter, a rare open letter. Bank Negara Governor dispels the notion that the EOPR hike linked to rise in bankruptcy. So she sent a letter to the editors on Friday, and she basically dispelled the alleged link between the central bank's overnight policy rate hike and the rise in individual bankruptcies in the country, saying that the number of individual bankruptcies actually has been on a declining trend since 2016. This is the worry about personal loans and the interest payments leading to personal loans rising. And, you know, emerging markets across the world are caught, especially as the US tries to raise its rates, right? And now people are talking about a one a, a one exact 1% hike in the upcoming Fed meeting. Mm. And I think emerging markets, central banks are all around the world scrambling to raise rates as well. You know, the the role of the central bank is is more important than actually just looking at the number of bankruptcies in the country, yes, right? Yes, yes. Um, they have a greater purpose, making sure that our economy is chugging along, that our monetary policy is responsive to the... It's a macro. Yeah. So unfortunately, yes, they might be, but actually she dispels that notion completely. But it also goes back to the conversation that we need to have whether people are boring for the right reasons, mm. you know, and whether financial literacy should be taught at schools at the very onset and understanding why this, if, the, if there indeed is a rise in bankruptcy, which there isn't, why is that the case? I mean, controlling our OPR rate just because there are a number of bankruptcies doesn't seem like very sound monetary policy to me. I only worry that it's driven by the interests of specific individuals that have been affected personally by this. Another issue that's arisen over, I think, the uh, late last week, and I hopefully was would be resolved amicably, is the labour deadlock between Malaysia and Indonesia. I think that we have seen over the weekend and in a week uh, the dispute between human resources as well as Home Ministry over the system, where I think Indonesia now has temporarily stopped the movement of Indonesian labour yeah. to Malaysia. Yeah. Why isn't this being resolved? Another thing that, right, that just keeps happening and happening and happening and we don't seem to be any clearer to it. Uh, very quickly, Edge also questions, how did Malaysia get here? And this is in relation to the Sulu Sultanate claims. And I think that's a valid question. Why are we in this pickle? Uh, but up next, we've got the 7am news bulletin and to take us there is My Love by Florence and the Machine. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.